I'm going to invite you at this time to turn with me in God's Word to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, which is found on page 1184 of your pew Bible. Titus chapter 2, we're going to read God's Word under the heading of Home Visiting, the Call of Gospel Holiness, or Godliness, excuse me. Home Visiting, the Call of Gospel Godliness from Titus chapter 2. Let's give our attention to God's Word this morning. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, and they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So the gra- For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord, and may we receive it with a believing heart. Well, dear congregation, we are in the midst of the education season here at Trinity United Reformed Church. Uh, The catechism books are being filled out, hopefully. The cadets and girls clubs are meeting. The choirs are practicing. And your elders are now preparing schedules to meet with each of you in your homes. Of course, over the last few years, COVID-19 and that virus changed things. But the consistory now feels that it's at the time, it's the appropriate time, uh, to begin again and return to the practice of home visits. Home visitation is not a social visit, but it's the spiritual obligation of the office bearers to take heed to the flock of God. This is the minister, the elders, and the deacons. It is a spiritual calling. And I recognize we live in an age when family visiting has fallen on bad times. I think it's true that it's no longer the common practice of our Protestant churches at large. 
maybe even in our Reformed churches any longer, to have the minister or the family, or excuse me, or the elders visit the, fi- the family privately. But it is part of our spiritual heritage as Reformed churches. If you go all the way back to Calvin's Geneva, it was a requirement of every minister not only to preach the Word publicly, but then to also go into the homes of the people and administer the Word privately to their lives. This practice eventually immigrated also to the Netherlands. Some of you maybe even remember the Hollander term for home visits. The house bazook. When the minister or the elders would come and visit you in your homes. But part of the reason home visitation has fallen on bad times is because some of you who may have experienced home visits as children, or maybe even recently, may not have positive memories about home visitation. You may think of home visits as that time when your mother frantically cleaned the house before the minister and the elders arrived. You might think of home visits as that instead of going out on Friday night and visiting with your friends, you have to sit with the elders of the church and talk about spiritual things. Even more so, more concerning, some of you may remember putting on a spiritual face, a mask for the elders. The old story is you take the TV and you put it in the closet, right? Can't let the elders know we watch TV. And we have to put on our Sunday best and act like we are a happy, spiritually healthy family when really we're not. Some of you may not even have been raised in the church. And your homes, when you look back on those times, were chaotic and hurtful and sinful times with your family, rather than a place of rest and a place of growth and safety. But the purpose of home visits, let us dispel all fear, is not so that the elders can come and hammer you about your sins or your shortcomings as a family. Or to investigate and pry into your lives. But the purpose we see from Titus chapter 2 is that the office bearers are called to minister Christ to the families. To minister the Gospel to each individual member of this congregation in a way that comforts them and encourages them to walk and to live a life of godliness. You see that in our theme this morning. Minister Christ in a way that encourages a life of gratitude. That's what Paul is calling Titus to do in Titus chapter 2. And that's what really brings hope to even the Christian family. So we want to see in this in three movements, a love for the household of God, the model of godliness, and the foundation of godliness. 
That's love of the household of God, a model of godliness, and the foundation for godliness. But we look first at that love for the household of God. The book of Titus is one of, we believe, one of the last letters that Paul would have wrote in his lifetime. As the title indicates, it's written to a minister named Titus who is pastoring, if you look at chapter 1, verse 5, on the island of Crete. Crete, of course, is an island in the Mediterranean Sea just south of the nation of Greece. And we don't know when Paul would have ministered in Crete and how many churches were there and when he established these churches, but he says again in chapter 1, verse 5, that Titus is there so that he might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. Not only that, Titus is, as we see in verse 1 of chapter 2, called to teach not only sound doctrine, but look at this nuance in chapter 1 verse or chapter 2 verse 1, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Literally in the Greek it says teach what accords with healthy teachings. That is teach how you live now in light of the gospel. Teach what to live a life that is consistent with the gospel of God's grace. Paul knows that there is a cancer in these Cretan churches. And Titus needs to be like a surgeon who comes in and removes what is dead so that the body might grow. You see, Paul recognizes this cancer. If you look at chapter 1, verse 16, speaking of the Cretans, he says of them, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. That's unhealthy teaching. That's what does not accord with sound doctrine. To profess God, but to not walk in His ways, that's what the Cretans were doing. But the Apostle Paul is clear here saying the church cannot be content that someone just profess faith but not live the faith. The church cannot be content that members attend public worship but not walk in the ways of God. But that the church through her office bearers is called to have a direct and a close contact with every single member of the flock. The Gospel is not just a call to justification that has come to Christ and be made right, but the Gospel is a call to come and live for Christ. To come and follow Christ. To be a Christian. And here, the Apostle Paul actually addresses four, five really groups of people within the congregation. First, I want you to notice, he speaks to the men. Paul applies the revelation of God to the men of the congregation. And he addresses older men and he tells them, be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled in verse 2. But here we see, Paul is actually critiquing the culture in Crete. If you have your Bible, look back at chapter 1, verse 10. He says, there are many who are insubordinate. 
empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. He goes on to say they're mouthy and deceptive. He says they're liars, they're lazy, they're motivated by money. In other words, they're motivated by a love for self. Paul says this is not to be the attitude of Christian men. But, if you know a man, you know that we men, the longer we live, the more set in our ways we become. The more trials we endure, the more cantankerous we are. This is actually a great temptation for men that the more we experience in life, the more we consider ourselves sufficiently wise. Men, is that true? You don't have to say yes. But look what Paul says. Don't be motivated by a love for self. We need to be motivated by sound faith in love and steadfastness. Throughout Paul's epistles, he uses this dictum, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And it's a synonym for the Gospel. In the Gospel, we have faith in the Gospel, we have hope in Christ, and we love one another in light of that Gospel. It's a synonym for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, older men in the congregation, don't be motivated by yourself, but be motivated by the Gospel. That's how we are to live. That's how we are to love one another. And men, especially those well-seasoned in life, still need to be willing to submit to the teaching of the Gospel. We still need to be able to sit under its teaching and its preaching. It is profitable even for you elderly men in the congregation to be taught the Gospel. Remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. He says it is profitable for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. What does he say? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Men are called also, likewise, not just the younger men, to submit to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To listen to its preaching and to hear its conviction and to change their walk according to the Word. I mentioned that we might think the older we get, the more sufficiently wise we become. John Calvin has this wonderful quote where he says, even men, if you lived a hundred years and studied the Word every day of your life, do you think you could not learn something from the God of all eternity? It's a great point. We cannot get to that place as Christian people where we think we're sufficiently wise. We need to constantly be humble and submitting to the Word of God. And likewise, Paul, if you jump down to verse 6, addresses the young men. Paul says to Titus, pastor the young men. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Notice the intensity of Paul's words. I'm not 
capturing the sense here. Urge the young men. It's a command. Pastor these young men. Shepherd them. Care for them. Be with them. Walk with them. And urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And all the parents of teenage boys who are here this evening groan, don't we? When we hear that. To be self-controlled? That's the opposite of a teenage boy. But Paul says that's what they need. You see, I've experienced it. To be a young man is to live a life full of passions. It's to war with the flesh. And to try to rein in its impulses. But Paul says, to be a young man devoted to the Gospel is to continue to do battle. I want to ask the young men a question here this morning. And this, let's say you're, if you're under 30, you qualify for this group. Young men, how goes the Gospel with you? I too once was young. As uh, one of my professors says, young men are two-pointers. You're a young buck. And it is a temptation of all of us to seek our niche in life, isn't it? Are we going to be an outdoorsman? Or some of us might want to be a tradesman. Am I going to be an intellect? A white-collar man? All of those things are good. But Paul says, if you focus on that alone, you will not be healthy. Paul says we must order our lives according to what is healthy doctrine. According to the healthy teachings. We need to order our lives according to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, in a sense, is saying, young men, it's time to grow up. It's time to take seriously the faith. What makes a real man, what makes a strong man, is not how many pieces of lumber you can carry. Is not how many bucks are on the wall. Here's one from my Michiganders. It's not how many Mountain Dews you can drink. Christian Michiganders. Paul is saying to be a man of God is to be a man of the gospel. And you young men will be the leaders of this Christian church. As I look at this congregation, you are the future deacons, young men. You are the future elders. You're the future ministers of these churches. How goes the Gospel with you? Is it your priority? I think the Apostle Paul is clear. A young man needs to be grounded in the Gospel. But you might say, if you're a young man here today, how do I learn self-control though? Self-control is the war. Self-control is the battle. How do I learn it? Look at verse verse 7. Paul says to Titus, show yourself a model. 
Young men need examples of godliness. They need to be able to look to other people to help disciple them and show them the way to go. And this is a major theme in this chapter. Listen to this word of application. Older men, Titus and the elders are to disciple the flock, but the flock is also to disciple one another. When I was a young two-pointer, I would not have been able to preach if a mentor didn't come alongside me and show the way to go and how to do it. I don't know whatever you want to do or pursue in your life, but I know that you couldn't have done it without examples. And it's the same way in the faith. We need people who can show us the way to go. So older men, here is your call. Find a young man in this church. Invest in him. Show him the way of the faith. Show him how to fight temptation. Show him how to fight sin. To love his wife. To shepherd his children. Show him the way to go. And then young men be willing and open to receive their counsel. You don't always get the mentor you thought you were going to get but we all need a mentor. Paul likewise says the same thing to women and younger women. He says women are also called to live a life that is consistent with the Gospel. Older women are to be reverent in behavior. The word he uses is actually two words put together in the Greek. The word for temple and the word for fitting. Live your lives as if you were in the presence of God. Live a temple befitting life. By way of analogy, when I was a boy, I was always in trouble for running in the sanctuary. Does anybody remember that? We recognize that there is a certain decorum required for being in the presence of God, His holy house. Paul says that's how a woman should live her whole life. Live your whole life like you were living in the presence of God, if you were in His temple. And he mentions two trappings that are not consistent with a feminine gospel living. He mentions two things, slander and addiction. If you've ever been the subject of slander, you know how painful this reality is. Slandering someone is to misrepresent them in order to damage their reputation. Most often, slander comes from the root of gossip. And the Bible over and over again, Colossians 3.8, Ephesians 4.31, James 4.11, says, do not slander. Slandering someone is the opposite of speaking the truth about them. Paul says the daughters of God need to fill their mouths with truth. To speak the truth. Do not fill your mouth with lies about other people. Do not fill your mouths with excessive drink. Fill your mouths with good things that we might teach, that the ladies might teach what is good. Again, John Calvin says, to teach what is good is to show the way of salvation. 
teach what is good. And so train the young women. Paul likewise is saying the young men need to be discipled, but also the young women need to be discipled in the flock. And you might see uh, in uh, this passage here, it seems as if the Apostle Paul is exclusively saying women can only, uh, the people needing a disciple are only those who are married, those who have children. It seems like he's only addressing wives and mothers, and it You get the impression that, well, if I'm not a wife or I'm not a mother, I don't get a mentor. I don't get to be discipled. And I don't think that's the case here. You see, the Greek society, especially the Christian society, um, did not hold fidelity, faithfulness in marriage with high regard. So much so, one commentator said, they don't even hold in high esteem a mother who would care for her children. I think Paul is saying here, Christian women need to, to mentor and disciple other Christian women to be faithful. Even today, there can be a looking down on Christian women, can't there? Really? You're going to get married? You're so young. You'll hear people say, why are you having children? A stay-at-home mom? You're useless to society, useless to all the career and the, the, the desires that you had in life. And there's this looking down the nose at women who want to be a Proverbs 31 kind of girl. People might look down on our young women today for dressing modestly. Or they'll look down on a woman for being, having morals and not being sexually promiscuous. But Paul is saying here, be a Proverbs 31 woman and respect that woman. She's not a lower caste of society like the Cretans thought. But the women are to encourage and highly regard a woman who lives a life for the Lord. So ladies, just like the older men here, look around this congregation. Every young woman here needs a mentor. Every young woman needs someone to show them how to serve the Lord. To serve their husbands and their children. And you, if having more experience in life and experience in the faith, you can pass on a godly legacy that can reproduce itself for generations to come. That's what your young people need. So Paul, having addressed these four groups within the congregation, he now moves to broaden his purview to every member of the church. And he says, the church is to look to Titus as a model of good works and submit to Titus's admonition and teaching. And this is an important statement here, our second point here, because it seems from chapter 1, the Cretans didn't highly regard Titus. They didn't accept his word as a minister. It says in uh, verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, and listen to this, empty talkers and deceivers. Verse 11, They must be silenced. 
They're upsetting the families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. You see, there's a lot of talking going on in this church. There's a lot of teaching that's going on. But there's not a lot of living that's going on. And you know what that does when someone praises God with this side of their mouth and then curses God with the other side. Curses their brother. The person who goes to church on Sunday Sunday, and then swindles the poor on Monday. It brings shame to Christ. And Paul says, we should be listening to our pastor because he walks the walk. He doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. So look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says to Titus, and by implication also the elders and office bearers, he says you should show yourself a model of good works. Don't just be a hearer, be a doer. Don't just edify with your lips, edify with your hands. Preach the Gospel with words and with your life. Once, by way of example, I had the privilege when I was a young man of working at Burger King with four other professed evangelical Christians. Two Reformed, one Baptist, and one Pentecostal, who was really, she was part of a cult, but and it, it sounds like this punch set up to a bad joke, right? Two Reformed, one Baptist, and a Pentecostal in a Burger King. And whenever we would all work together, we would talk about the Lord, and we'd talk about the things of God, and the rest of the staff would be just sitting around, working around us listening. And I remember once in these uh, conversations, one of the employees said, you know, these conversations, listening to them, they only push me farther away from the church. They only push me farther away from ever wanting to follow Christ. And of course, we were all horrified. And we asked her, why? And her response was so sobering. She she said, because all four of you talk like Christians, but only one of you acts like a Christian. See, the Apostle Paul is making a point that we already know in our hearts. Christian, people are watching you. They're watching to see if you not only teach with integrity but also live a life of integrity. Do you bless the Lord with your mouth that is just as foul as others when the unbelievers see that the Gospel becomes disregarded? If we teach our children to love their siblings, but mom and dad hate each other, the Gospel is disregarded. We have a Jesus fish on our car and then we flip someone off in the intersection. The Gospel is disregarded. Paul says, believe upon Christ and live for Christ and the opponents of Christ shall be put to shame. And the elders are to be the spearhead special models of godliness. And we think, well, yeah, of course. But then look what Paul says beginning in verse 9. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. 
How profound. Not only the pastor and the elders, who are the highest office in the church, but he says even the lowest of the people in the congregation. The ones who, a better translation might be bond servants. They don't have their own will. They don't have their own life. They don't have their own jobs and professions. Even they are to be Christians in their walk. Paul says they should seek to please their masters and to live a life of faith. It's a heightening of the argument. If bond servants are called to submit to their masters, who might not even be Christians, who might at that time abuse and beat them, and they are still to receive their word with an obedience and good faith, how much more so should the flock of God receive the advice of the overseers and the shepherds? And Paul says, when a servant obeys their master and seeks to live a life of faith under them, and it doesn't matter, it doesn't need to be a New Testament slave, but you could be a farmer, you could be a housewife, you could be a nurse, you could be a lawyer, you could be a Burger King employee and seek to serve the Lord. Paul says, when you obey your masters in service to God, you, listen to this, adorn the doctrine of God. These slaves could have been shoveling manure. They could have been filing meaningless paperwork. But when they do it in faith, they beautify, they magnify, they make attractive Christ to the world. The idea is this. Whether you are an office bearer in the church or you are a lowly bond servant, we follow the example of Christ and His office bearers. And we seek to live a life that honors the Lord. And so we are the bond servants of God. And as we receive instruction from the elders and the ministers and the deacons on how to serve Christ and to obey Christ, and then we live it, we are adorning the doctrine of God. Christ is made beautiful. Not only with the words of a good sermon or good singing, Christ is made beautiful when we listen to the Word of God and then put it into practice in our lives. And this, dear congregation, is why home visits are so important. Because the office bearers will come into your homes and they don't come with their own opinions. They don't come to pry and investigate. But they come with an official message from Jesus Christ. That Christ is calling you as He has called them. Calling you to an obedient life. A life of service unto Him. And they 
shall lead and guide. The elders need to instruct and exhort, warn and comfort, and call the congregation to receive it. Let's move on to our third point. I want you just to notice, we'll try to move rather quickly, notice the motivation for godliness. Say there's a sin that you're struggling with, a sin that your children, your wife are struggling with, your husband. The motivation for godliness is not the elders prying into your life. The motivation for godliness is not to put you under a microscope. The motivation for godliness, says the Apostle Paul, verse 11, the grace of God. Some, like the Roman Catholics, have thought that this idea of grace can only lead to a licentious lifestyle. Well, now I'll just sin all the more because I know that God's grace is free. Paul says it's the opposite. If you've been saved by grace, you have been set free to live for Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, for by the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, training us. Through the Holy Spirit, we and His grace, we are trained to live for God. Just like running a race or preparing for a fight, so it is with the Spirit in us. Christ has given us His grace even when we don't see it or feel it. We might be discouraged about past sins. We occasionally fall into sins as Christians even today. But the Spirit is training you through the process of committing and receiving forgiveness for sins, training you to flee from Satan and to trust in Christ. Grace isn't just to get us saved. It's to train us in a life of holiness. Likewise, Zechariah prophesied at Christ's return, or Christ's birth, I should say, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, listen to this, might serve Him with fear. See, Christ, Paul is talking about His incarnation, in His first coming brings salvation. He frees us from the condemning power of the law, but He has also come to train you. To prepare you. To perfect you. For glory. See, we're trained by grace. Look what the Apostle Paul says, but we're trained for glory. Notice, the Apostle Paul refers to Christ appearing. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. This is what we wait for. This is what we long for. When Christ returns and sin is banished and we see Him face to face and we are made perfect like Him. That's what we are in preparation for. And so elsewhere, you know this verse well, I'm sure, Paul says that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will complete you. He will perfect you but not this side of glory. This side of glory. We need Christ's daily grace. And we can be sure that Christ, by receiving Christ's grace, we can be sure that one day He will perfect us. He gave Himself for us. He became polluted with sins 
in guilt and misery. He died that our souls would be spotless and pure and blameless. That's the motivation for godliness. Christ has died. And He has done this that He might purify me, a ruined and miserable sinner. So finally, Paul turns back to the office bearers in verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. See, the conclusion I want to draw us to this morning is that it is the job of the ministers and the elders and the deacons to minister Christ to every single member of the flock. And this is their spiritual calling. This was Titus' spiritual calling. Preach the Word and love these people. And it is good for the church. Final story and then we'll conclude. There was once a traveler who went to the great city of Geneva where Calvin pastored. And Geneva even today, uh, as far as I know, is still spiritually strong. It's a place where the Reformation you know, was really perfected and the Reformation still continues to hold sway there. And he went there to inquire, why have these churches remained strong for hundreds and hundreds of years? And as he investigated and discovered, he came to the conclusion that chiefly the reason that the members of the congregations have remained strong is through regular and thorough visiting of the families. Apply, allow the elders to apply Christ to you. And to show you the deadness that may exist within your own heart and your own families. And open your hearts and receive them into your homes and into your lives. Paul says, do not disregard them. Receive their words as if they were the words of God for you. And as you submit and put them into practice, we become a witness to the world of how Christians are to live. And listen to this. And you adorn the doctrines of God. You make beautiful Christ. You make lovely the God who saved you. When you submit with humble faith to the ones that God has placed over you. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks this Lord's Day morning for the great love of the household of God. You have given us a model in Titus and the office bearers in Crete who follow Paul, who follows Christ. For He really is the foundation of godliness. He is, the Lord Jesus Christ is wonderful. Who does all things well, even to the point of being condemned upon the cross. We give You thanks for Him. And we ask, Heavenly Father, Your blessing upon each and every one of us, especially Your blessing upon the elders as they prepare to go into the homes of this congregation. Lord, bless and keep them. Be with Your people also. Allow them to, be there, to have open hearts 
to the ways of God in and through this congregation. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bless and keep us and that you would do all these things because you have loved us and Christ has done it and accomplished it all. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.